Hey. hey. You're listening to Avid Research. Avid Research. Avid Research. An Australian STEM podcast. Where we answer the questions you never quite got around to asking. And today we have a super special, extra awesome show with a really cool guest. So firstly, I need to say it's a special show because we're doing this as part of the Awesome Pint of Science Festival, which we're running a little bit late for it. Like the the main activities happen in May, but it's going to be spread all throughout the year because we live in a digital age now and everything is like spread out and remote, which is cool. If you want to know more about what's happening as part of Pine of Science, head over to their website, uh, which I'll be linking in the show notes. You can also just find it by Googling. But we need to get to the important stuff. Today, we have Dr. Luke Wiley on the show, who is a senior lecturer in phenomics. Hopefully I said that right. Uh, specializing in healthy aging and dementia. Welcome to the show, Dr. Luke. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Absolute pleasure. Starting with hopefully an easy question. What is your job? Well, I'm a researcher in, as you said before, phenomics. And so so what does that, that mean? So basically, I study the interactions between our, our lifestyle, our genetics and our environment. So the genetics is is what we're born with. And there's, you know, that's what we inherit. And that defines us of who we are a bit. But also think of all the other influences that, that happen on a, on a daily basis, the food we eat, whether we exercise, whether we live in a town centre or out in the country, all actually add up to give us our, our phenotype as the actual how we develop and who we are. And I study that that phenotype throughout people's uh, lifespans and and evaluate that to see if it, if any particular lifestyle or or interaction or actually leads to an increased chance of disease or perhaps um, enables healthy aging. Wow! So it's really looking at people as I guess holistic, complex creatures. Yeah, exactly. So we view it as sort of like a, a systems biology approach. There's not really necessarily one thing that's going to define disease as we age but it's likely to be a combination of factors whether we are genetically susceptible or whether we are exposed to environmental elements that that add up together to give us an increased sort of disease risk as we as we age i'm sort of imagining you creating like a whole lot of bar graphs or something of percentages of like if you have like a lot of natural genetic risk but then you counterbalance that with like a really good lifestyle and all these sort of like things balancing out to increase or decrease risk that's what we're aiming and that's what we're seeking to to build towards really is trying to evaluate how much of each element builds into our, our risk factor for certain diseases there is obviously sort of genetic underlying element to that and some people are more susceptible to to different diseases but we're more and more seeing that actually it's our lifestyle and and our environment um that is having a greater influence on that and you sort of see that more and more with uh lifestyle diseases there's a lot of research into sort of western diets and sedentary lifestyles that are thought to impact health as we age so um it is sort of that that combination of, of factors that we're really trying to assess and see what has the bigger influence um, throughout our lifetime. And that's like, as someone who is obviously 
a human and therefore susceptible to disease. That's kind of exciting that it's not just genetics. Like, you know, there there is some level of agency that we have. We we can control a little bit of our outcome, at least a little. Absolutely. And that's the, the real key translation to our research, really. If we can find elements of, of a lifestyle that are thought to increase um, disease risk, perhaps we can develop interventions and that may be in changes to lifestyle or it might even be through sort of pharmaceutical intervention, policy intervention from from governments. And if we can change that, then hopefully we can delay the onset of disease and help people live a healthier happier life sounds very hopeful yeah it, it that that's the that's the aim i think we're, we're some way from that but i mean it's it's good to good to try right yeah well we're definitely not going to get anywhere yeah. if we don't try yeah <laughs> have you got anything you're working on at the moment that you, you think would be kind of cool to share with the listeners yeah so we we employ as part of our um day-to-day running of the of the lab here I could talk through a little bit of how we we use um, the technique called metabolic phenotyping to analyze um, people's uh, lifestyle. So what we what we do and what we rely on is um, we actually collect samples um, and work with collaborators from clinical hospitals, doctors, GP, um, and we collect those samples and we build up collaborations and we use some platforms called mass spectrometry. Um, and mass spectrometry enables us to measure the metabolites and the, all the different chemicals that are in a blood sample or a urine sample. And the idea of that is, is if we can measure the, the different chemicals that are in inside urine, for example, and we can get enough people uh, and enough samples, we can start to spot trends in their urine. Urine is a great biofluid because... Uh, everything we eat and everything that we expose to and experience are all kind of end up collected in our urine and then we can measure that. So it helps us uh, identify what people have been exposed to, um, how people live. And it's, this is what we call someone's metabolic phenotype or metabolic fingerprint. And we can compare that with genetic data and start to get a bit of understanding about the relationship of what people are exposed to and then how that compares to their their genetics as well and their genetic susceptibility. So some interesting projects that we're working on at the moment is that we're actually working on um, some COVID-19 research where we're looking and we're trying to work out um, why some people are particularly susceptible to experiencing uh, longer-term symptoms of disease and why some people are more susceptible to severity of the disease. And what we're doing that, we're measuring their metabolism throughout their infection uh, time and also follow up uh, three to six months after their infection and to see whether we can spot trends in the population that may indicate why some people are more susceptible to that uh, longer-term long COVID that's been, been documented in the news. The question I guess I have around that is... Have there been enough cases in Australia for you to be getting like significant enough amounts of data? Yeah, so that's a, that's a really good question. So how can I? Um, so really, we're um, what we've done is we've got a, a cohort that we've collected from Western Australia, which has been fortunate and it hasn't seen too many cases. Um, but we've also um, been lucky enough to be involved with some international consortiums. 
um, and we're working on similar data sets with them uh, and we're combining all of our data and we've also been able to analyze um, some samples in collaboration with international partners to really try and build up those numbers and to build statistical significance. So um, there's similar labs around the world and we're part of um, various collaborative networks and that's the one of the really nice things about uh, working in science is you get to, to work with all these great scientists around the world and experts in their field and a lot of collaborators who are great to work with and we we build up our, our numbers that way. That makes sense that's fantastic it's also kind of nice to know that there's not like vials of urine being flown all around the world just for <laughs> <laughs> that yeah Sometimes that happens, I'd say. Ah, <laughs> oh, there's there's been all sorts of interesting things happened on this podcast. You mentioned that our our urine shows some things that we've been exposed to. Are you able to give any examples of things that might people might not expect to turn up in their urine that actually does? Yeah. So one thing that um, people may not um, know has a, a great influence on their health is actually more and more we're starting to investigate the the bacteria that that live with us so we obviously know that there are, are microbes that are, are bad for our health but there are also microbes that live on with us every day so that might be on our skin in our mouths uh, and more and more focus is particularly targeting the, the the types of microbes and bacteria that live inside of our, our gut there's actually thought to be more uh, cells bacterial cells in our gut than sort of any other organ in our system. So they had the metabolic influence that the gut bacteria have on us is, is huge. And it's really only um, starting to be research in that field is really taking off in, in recent years. Um, and, the, and the reason I, I bring that up is because we can use the metabolic signatures in urine to identify particular metabolites that are produced or are influenced by gut bacteria. And that gives us a bit of a snapshot at any point in time about the health of that, that gut bacteria and how those gut bacteria may be changing in response to influences and maybe influencing uh, health and disease. So it's one of the, the areas that we, we definitely research is looking for these metabolite uh, markers that are influence of, of the bacteria that, that live with us. So it, it really is a, a great pool of interesting information that we can, we can look at. I love that as well because that is very non-invasive way of finding out what like some things that are happening in your gut. Yeah, absolutely. And um, that's one of the the great things about metabolic phenotyping and phenotyping is we can we can take these these blood samples and urine samples and analyze them without having to take uh, tissue biopsies or be more invasive and we can try and get a, that snapshot, that fingerprint of a point in time. Um, that is how the, the human system is, is operating. It's fascinating. The whole thing, fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> However, in your title, it did mention dementia. Yes. And I know that's something that a lot of people listening to this podcast are particularly interested in, largely due to like family members um, and friends, etc. Are you able to talk a little bit about how this phenotyping and dementia are related? Yeah, absolutely. So... A particular project that I've been uh, working on recently is that we know that there are some genetic markers that increase the chance of somebody 
um, being diagnosed with dementia as they age. And there are some uh, types of dementia that are fully genetic influenced. So if you are a risk carrier of that gene, the, the, the chance of developing dementia as we age is incredibly high. And, it, and that often um, affects people earlier in their, in their lifetime. However, later dementia, and uh, that is, has a, some genetic risk, and there are some genes that are in the population that increase the chance of um, an individual being diagnosed with, with dementia as they're a bit older. Now, those genes have been identified, but still the function and or I should say the mechanism of how those genes influence an individual's chance. And when I say their chance, what I mean by that is they have a slightly higher chance of developing dementia. So it's not necessarily that if you're carrying one of these risk genes, you're definitely going to um, be diagnosed of it but it's slightly increasing the chance, but the mechanism between people who carry those genes and then are diagnosed with dementia isn't still really understood. So a project that I'm involved with is that we are um, analyzing people's blood samples and their urine samples. And these samples have been collected from a, a population which is uh, middle-aged, so people just going about their daily business, and it's called a, a healthy aging study. So we've collected some samples from a, from a healthy aging study, and we've analysed their metabolic phenotype. And these people have also been tested for these risk genes. And what we've tried to do is we've looked for any correlation between people who carry the risk gene and their metabolic phenotype. And what we've actually identified is a couple of really interesting metabolic markers that seem to indicate certain pathways are changed in the in a, in the person's system at that point in life and what that may mean is that we can start to understand why the people who carry those genes actually have that increased chance of developing um, dementia as they get older and it's really about trying to put all the bits of the puzzle in place so we can really identify that that mechanism and that process as to the why the disease only um, affects certain people it's really kind of trying to reverse engineer like you end up with a person who's been diagnosed with dementia and then work out what the things were that could have i guess enabled that to happen to them over their life yeah, and one of the challenges is in, is in researching dementia is there's a common hypothesis and it's actually, well, not really beyond the hypothesis, it's known that the actual biology of dementia starts to occur before the symptoms are shown by, by people who are um, affected by the disease. It, it's actually very challenging to get to be confident that you are looking at uh, individuals who have been diagnosed with dementia and people who are are healthy controls because actually they may have the underlying pathology of dementia and that's thought to happen occur up to about 20 years before the onset of the signs and symptoms of disease. So what we're trying to do more and more is look at um, healthy aging cohorts where people were collecting samples from people at various time points throughout their, their life. So see if we can spot these changes in the system and these trends 
uh, in human lifetime that may indicate why it is that some people do do develop the disease. Yeah, so you really need to go quite a long way back. That study's going to take you a while. Yeah, so well, we can we can look at certain uh, different time points. So for the when we're actually waiting to see who is going to out the cohort to be diagnosed dementia, that does obviously is is a bit of a waiting game. But we can start to look at other aspects. So for example, the genetic and phenotypic interactions. Um, before you know at the current time point and we can see how they are changing over time as the studies continue to be updated is there anything that's sort of leaping out or is that that's known to researchers that is an increased risk factor other than like having the genes yeah so there's more and more appreciation that there's a lifestyle element to it as well and certainly mid mid mid-life uh, health is thought to be a risk factor. So um, midlife uh, high blood pressure um, is thought to be a risk factor. Uh, smoking is thought to be a risk factor. Uh, obesity and type 2 diabetes are also thought to be uh, lifestyle risk factors for dementia's people age as well. So there's sort of becoming a um, an established thought that it is a lot to do with sort of like overall cardiovascular health, and, and managing that cardio metabolic cardiovascular health um, has an impact actually on the whole human as we age, including dementia type diseases as well. It makes sense. Like the brain needs healthy blood and everything coming to it. Hmm. And there's been some really uh, cool uh, research that came out of a, um, a team over in Finland and it's called the, the finger study. Um, and they actually, they took a group of people um, who had not been uh, diagnosed with um, dementia and they split them randomly into two groups and they gave one group a very, very strict dietary control exercise routine. And what they found was that the group who um, they gave the, the the exercise and the healthy diet to, actually they, they had a more stable cognition as they aged over the study where the group that they said okay just live your everyday life and they found that those people were more sedentary didn't exercise so much didn't have such a healthy diet um actually they had a um experienced a greater rate of cognitive decline um, in the study so there's evidence more and more coming together that we can to a point influence our health and um and as we age and as particularly our cognitive health so and that's now being rolled out uh worldwide so there's a, a now they're using that template study all around the world and there's even one being um don't know quite know the status of it i don't know if it's been approved or in process but it's going to happen in australia as well fantastic and the thing is there are two things exercise and good food that will also decrease your risk of all the other things as well yeah yeah and it's amazing really how so many diseases are are linked to risk factors including diet exercise um, smoking it's, it's the same the same culprits really um for a lot of a lot of diseases which is like frustrating but it's also good because it means many birds with one stone yeah and i think that it from it, it's more than likely that a lot of these diseases are interlinked in some way as well like um we've already um, spoken about how obesity and type 2 diabetes are risk factors for dementia as, as people get older so there's going to be links between the the pathology of those as too for sure i forgot to ask a really simple question are you able to describe what dementia actually is yeah so certainly so 
Um, dementia is actually a bit of an umbrella term and it covers a lot of different diseases. So the most common dementia that um, people would have heard of would be Alzheimer's disease. Alzheimer's disease, there are uh, two main forms. There's a, a genetic form and that tends to, that's um, hereditary, it's in families and people tend to experience symptoms of that um, at midlife. So sort of 40s and 50s. And then there's a second type of Alzheimer's disease, um, which is commonly referred to as, as later onset Alzheimer's disease. And that's a, a lot less is known about who is going to be affected by that. So that's sort of what I was talking about earlier. There are some genetic risk factors, um, but it's not really known why people who have those genetic risks go on to develop Alzheimer's disease. Beyond Alzheimer's disease, there are some other types of dementia that may have been heard of, and probably another common one that people may have heard of is vascular dementia, which again is typically a, a disease as people get older as well. And there's there's lots of other types of and subtypes of, of dementia. So when people speak about dementia, it's sort of like that, that umbrella term that covers a lot of other uh, subtypes of the disease. And what actually happens to you? If you get dementia like I think we all just have this caricature in our head unless we've seen someone of just like oh that person became forgetful yeah so again it depends on the on the subtype of um the disease so if we take um Alzheimer's disease which is the like I said the, the most uh, commonly diagnosed um dementia people who are diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease tend to experience gradual memory loss and they tend to experience um, difficulties in forming new memories so often they can recall things from a few years ago but find it difficult to form new memories and then recall those new memories initially it starts off uh, fairly um, mild and and then it, it's, a, it's a disease that gradually declines and the severity it sort of increases uh, over time but then something like um, vascular dementia that may see different symptoms. So for their vascular dementia, people may experience difficulties forming conversation and form and formulating the, the words to, to sort of say in a, in a, in a conversation. So it affects sort of like different aspects of uh, cognition. So it is a bit of a, like I say, cause it is this umbrella term, different subtypes will have different symptoms. But in all types of dementia, it tends to be a gradual progressive disease that gets gets worse over time. And is there anything that can be done for people who have been diagnosed? So there are some treatments. They tend to slow the slow the, the progression of the diseases. There currently aren't any treatments that completely um, halt or reverse the the disease so it is important to be active on it because the earlier that these treatments um can be taken up the the sort of the, the greater impact but unfortunately at the moment they only slow the slow the, the the progression of the disease there's nothing um that will prevent or or reverse it now i think that is changing and there are breakthroughs all the time and there are new drugs in trials all the time um but however the, on the market at the moment the, the drug treatments available only slow the slow the disease 
but there's always research as you say and this is something that affects a lot of people so it's not like something they're just going to forget about absolutely so um a, a lot of the there's a lot of research going on into new treatments and there's a lot of sort of successful or promising i should say promising results uh, coming through all the time and in a way that is why uh, metabolic phenotyping and phenotyping is also important because if we can identify new pathways and new mechanisms um, that happen before sort of the the mechanisms of uh, dementia set in, then perhaps that the drug um, treatments can happen earlier and interventions can happen earlier be before the cognitive decline and the memory uh, challenges with memory occur. So it's about identifying these new novel targets. Um, and re and the more we can research and fill that knowledge gap, the more the the treatment research teams and the drug developer um, teams can focus in different areas and come up with novel ways of, of tackling the disease. And it totally makes sense. The earlier you can get to it, the better it's going to be for everyone and hopefully the cheaper too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And um, what's important in that aspect as well is if we imagine um, sort of a, a progression curve of uh, say alzheimer's disease now perhaps the early pathology in the disease it starts to occur sort of 10 to 20 years before the symptoms set in now if we can catch a disease in in that phase and shift that curve 10 or 20 years to the right instead of people being diagnosed at at 60 and 70 they're now being diagnosed at 80 and 90 and we can sort of um greatly improve people's cognition as, as they age so it's perhaps maybe not actually treating the disease but perhaps it can be delaying the onset of it until people are older or it could be actually prevention rather than cure yeah and it's always seemed a little unfair to me that we keep adding years at the end of our lives but they tend to be the ones who are a bit like foggier and less functional and it'd be great if we could just be that bit healthier as we get older and older yeah i completely agree and um, i think that a lot of health research in the coming decades will really focus on sort of that 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 quality of life factor rather than sort of extending it you know so actually making sure that the the time that we have is 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 um, really quality of life and raising that quality of life little little bit of quality over quantity yeah <laughs> <laughs> now I have gone I've taken you very far off the script I will try and we'll try and come back uh with a, a question that was actually on the script what does an average day or if week or month is easier what does an average period of time look like for you <laughs> at work yeah I think that's the thing that I I really love about my job is is that I would say not no one day is is the same so Sometimes, although it's getting less and less, I still really love getting in the lab and running the machines and running the, the mass spectrometers and doing the sample analysis. Then other times it's getting more and more that the, the bigger the data sets that we have to look at is I'm spending more and more of my time actually looking at data and looking at results and trying to interpret those results. And then uh, it will be um, talking to um, collaborators, both across Australia and internationally and um, really trying to get a get an understanding of of what we're seeing in the results so yeah it really is a very job that that goes from 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 the lab to a bit of bioinformatics and, and data and coding 
to presenting results and discussing it and trying to interpret what that actually means in terms of, of human biology. Is there also a bit of lecturing in there? Yep, so definitely. And one of the things that we're working really hard on and, and developing is actually teaching these techniques um, to the next generation of researchers. So uh, we here at Murdoch have got a, a Masters of, of System Medicine, where we teach all of the, the techniques that a, a new researcher would need. So we go through genomics and metabolic phenotyping, uh, transcriptomics. We then also cover things like study design and a publication of results and presentation of results so yeah it's definitely something that we're um we're, we're sort of really passionate about because we really need to bring through the the the, the new research with the new ideas to, to take the take the field forward and possibly to keep track of the 20 40 year old uh 40 year studies as well <laughs> yeah exactly and keep them rolling because and keep them going yeah because you can't do that forever <laughs> no very true what are some of the skills that you need to be able to do this? I think the, the biggest one that we use on a daily basis is, is troubleshooting. Abs- like without a question of doubt, sometimes our instruments and our data and our results. So before we, we run a big project, we, we, we quality control the instrument. We make sure it's set up properly. We double check everything in the lab to make sure that when we actually run the, the, the really valuable samples, um, we're not going to be, be let down by the equipment. And sometimes it doesn't work. So we have to do a lot of on-the-fly troubleshooting, try and find out why it's not working. And then when we analyze our, our study data, we have to have a bit of a, an analytical mind to it. What's the question we want to ask the data to get the, to get the answer out? So what we're we looking for, what's the biological question we're looking at, what do we want to interpret from this data? So then it's really trying to think about what the best way to, to ask that. So a lot of troubleshooting and a lot of, a lot of sort of like analytical thinking and, and discussion amongst the team about what the best way to go there is. Yeah, right. Because if you, even if you've got a good data set, if you ask a biased question or a question that isn't well formed or something, you're not going to get good quality information out of it. Exactly. And so there's a, I've got a really great example about that. So we ran some some samples from an Alzheimer's disease cohort. And um, what we were looking for, we were trying to compare Alzheimer's disease to people of a similar age who hadn't been diagnosed with dementia. And we were trying to see if there are any metabolic differences between the two two sets. And we ran some analysis and we got really excited because there were these these really big metabolic markers that differentiated between the two groups. But then when we went into it in more detail, we actually realized that the big metabolic markers that we saw were just metabolic fragments of an Alzheimer's disease drug. So of course that we could differentiate between the two groups, but we were measuring the drugs from the people who were already diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. So it's a real lesson for us that we have to learn to ask the right question of the data. Otherwise, we're going to get really obvious answers that are looking back in hindsight. It's, it's obvious that we were going to separate the two groups based on Alzheimer's disease drugs because the, 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 the people who hadn't been diagnosed with Alzheimer's, of course, weren't taking Alzheimer's disease treatments. Yes, that's a good lesson to have learned. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And we did more with that data as well. We did more with the study. It wasn't just looking for that. So it wasn't a, a complete study sort of waste. Um, but that was just one of the questions we were asking. And then we, it was very, very quick because we saw these big differences. And then we thought, no, actually, we've, we've looked at something that's that's too obvious. Yeah. And it's also a good, it's a good <laughs> reminder as well that you need to understand, like, 
remember that you're not just looking at samples, you're looking at people and people might like people with Alzheimer's are going to have the same drug, that sort of stuff. Like, yeah. How have you ended up in this job, like doing this research? What was your path? So from high school to where you are now? So I think my, my path's been a little bit different from other sort of uh, academic researchers. I haven't been a, on a traditional academic path, I would say. So I, I went to, after high school, I went and did a, a university degree and I, I, did, I did biochemistry undergraduate, which I really enjoyed. And then I, I did go and do a PhD. So that bit was, was fairly um, sort of traditional academic research. Then after my PhD, I thought that um, I wanted to try something different. So I went and worked in, in an industry and I, that's where I really started to, to learn how to use the tools and, that I now use. But at the time, I was using them to, I worked in a, an anti-doping lab. So it was the UK Sport Anti-Doping Laboratory. And I, had a, uh, I worked there during the period of the London Olympic Games. And then I, I was working there through until the, the 2014 Commonwealth Games that were held up in, in Glasgow. So I wasn't doing any, any research. I was doing purely uh, sort of routine, trying to, to catch people who were doping in sport. And then after that, I thought I, I still really like this, this technique. I'm going to apply it in a, in a different way. So I went to work for the, the UK Government Ministry of Defence. And we were trying to then use the same tools, but that time we were trying to detect different chemicals. So for example, when you sort of go to um, an airport and they swap your bag, we're looking for for tools to, to, to um, detect things like that and use mass spectrometry in a similar way to, de- to detect for the Ministry of Defence. And then that's when I returned uh, to university and I went to work um, at Imperial, which is in, in London. And when I was there, they were setting up this new centre called the UK National Phenome Centre. And I went to work there and I applied my, my mass spectrometry skills and, and worked with them and worked on a number of, of projects with them. And as part of that, the, they started to build a worldwide network of phenome centres, one of which was destined for Perth. So when um, they were setting that up, uh, I, I applied for a, an academic role in the centre and here I am. And so it's sort of a, a, a bit of a journey. And But now I'm, I'm over at Murdoch University and I'm working at the Australian National Phenome Centre. And uh, we are about, uh, we set up about 18 months ago and it's been, it's been really great fun. That's very recent. Yeah, yeah. So I moved to Perth from London in October 2019. So yeah, I haven't been here too long, but um, I've been really enjoying it, really enjoying the, the challenge of uh, sort of setting up the new laboratory and I'm sort of trying to build sort of a collaborative links and work with other researchers who are over here, both in Perth and, and, and Australia-wide, really. Interesting timing. Y- yes, yeah, it, it has. It, it did time very, very conveniently um, with uh, sort of the world. And yeah, it's, <laughs> it's funny how, how things work out. How many people are working in this phenome center? Oh, that's, that's, a, that's a good question. So I would say we're probably now over 20 people. And it's a mixture of 
technical specialists who are, are tasked with keeping the lab and the, the we've got a lot of sort of expensive analytical equipment um, and they keep all that up and running um, and really assist with sort of the, the technical aspects of the of the projects we've got a sort of an academic team who are tasked with sort of overseeing the different research um, areas so as we spoke about for my my area would be healthy aging and dementia but we have people who are looking into diabetes, uh, we're looking into cardiovascular disease, uh, nutrition and diet. Um, so tasked with sort of setting up different research groups. And then we have sort of a statistical team and a bioinformatics team who really are tasked with sort of taking all the data that we generate and, and turning that into something um, of sort of biological value. So it's a really multidisciplinary team with lots of different skill sets and lots of little, um, lots of different data um, sharing ideas and, and, and brainstorming about how best to sort of take the, the data forward. They sound like great fun to work with. It's a it's a really great team actually. Um, I've really enjoyed sort of the last last eighteen months, and uh, yeah, and everyone um sort of really really works well together, and yeah, it, and I think in in science you need that multidisciplinary team because it's impossible for everyone to be an expert in everything. So you need people who specialize in certain areas, and and tying them together is I think gives gives you the best chance of success. Definitely. It's one of the myths we're sort of trying to bust on this podcast is the idea that to be a scientist, you have to be a lone genius. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think I think that's really important thing to 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 get across that that we are we are a team and some people here are better at some things and some people are better at other things. And, and together we try and put our heads together and, and get a get a good result. Which is what we need to do to solve some of these huge problems. Absolutely. During that that sort of roundabout path were there any particularly like key events that sort of spurred you along or like encouraged to move into industry or away and back into academia I'd say not really I think I I think I've been very fortunate in a way that the opportunities have come up at, at certain at time points and I think I've just taken them and taken the new challenge um I view it as sort of a bit of a yeah a, a, a fortune really and, and that, that some that at that moment when I was uh, a contract was coming was ending winding down somewhere another opportunity came up and I sort of jumped into it and, and took it on and 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 even sort of coming over here to Perth was sort of a, an opportunity that opened at the right time and and all my experience that I'd, I'd built up from from the various different roles in the UK made me sort of so sort of, uh, the skill set was a good skill set and a good fit for the position that came up up in in Perth. So, I uh, yeah, I think that it's it's taking those opportunities that that come your way and and trying to make the most out of each one. And it, it seems to have, have worked out in the positive for me so far. So, look, that's great advice. There's a bit of making your own opportunities as well by like talking to people and being comfortable with going outside your comfort zone. In your case, moving halfway around the world. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that what you said there about making the right contacts and speaking to the right people, I certainly agree with that. And some of the opportunities that come my way have been have been through that and have been through um, working with people and, and building up those relationships. What is the coolest thing about your job? What helps you get up every morning and be like, yes, we're going to go do some phenotyping? <laughs> it, it definitely helps that we're we're in a good environment and we're in a good team i look forward to sort of coming in and working with people but i also really like the challenge i like when we when we experience a problem i i really love that troubleshooting idea like that's what i 
I really enjoy doing is when we're, we're stuck at a problem, either actually in, in the lab data itself or when I'm looking through the, the data sets and trying to, to, to work through it and trying to get the, get the answer from that data. So I really enjoy that kind of, yeah, troubleshooting and working through things in sort of like a, a, a logical pipeline to try and tease out exactly, you know, what's gone wrong or what's gone right. In, in the in the collection there is something very satisfying about having a little red light or something not turning on or whatever and working your way backwards and being able to get to the bottom of it and then fix it yeah and and that's what i, I really enjoy is when you when you have a success you might work on it for a week and then and then then suddenly you 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 get to the bottom of why it's not working or or you you try something different and it and it comes together that's what i that's what i really really enjoy sounds awesome what advice would you give to a young person if they were listening to this and they're like, you know, solving these really big sort of holistic problems sounds really interesting. Have you got any advice you'd like to give them? Yeah. So I think that I remember that it is all part of the team. So we, what, if you want to be involved in something like that, follow what, what you're interested in and try and get experience in that, speak to the right people, uh, reach out and get some work experience some lab experience and just see what aspects of the pipeline you like. Maybe you really enjoy the lab work, but you don't like the data processing. Maybe it's the other way around. Maybe you really like playing with data, but you, you're not really too interested in, in going in and, and working with human urine samples all day. So I think it is finding out what really what you really enjoy and then just then building up those those connections and those, that experience of, of different laboratories and, and expanding that skill set. And I love that, remembering that you don't need to be one person doing an entire lab's work worth or like research centre's worth of work. Like you're one piece. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And you, you might become like really good at one particular thing, but, you know, it's about then having a conversation with other experts who may be better at something else or may have, have like a, a really good sample set for you to apply your, you know, it's a, it really is multidisciplinary and, and a, a big team effort. Is there any way that mature people could be involved? Like, can, um, is there any kind of citizen science that they can contribute or something? I think that like the skills that we, we employ to our projects are achievable and learn, learnable at any, any time point, really. Like I said, a lot of the stuff that we do, a lot of it is like, troubleshooting um, and having that that drive to sort of like learn new things and to find out exactly what's gone wrong and investigating things and then beyond beyond that there are always recruitment studies going on there's always a need for sort of um, people to sign up to biobanks and and donate the samples and go in and and have sort of like you know, because normally when you sign up to the sort of the, these healthy aging studies, there'd be a clinical visit and it's sort of taking sort of blood pressure and height and weight and then donating a urine sample or something like that. There's always opportunities to be involved with with um, research at, at all aspects, really. So if you get approached or if you see a flyer or something, jump on it and you too can contribute, help solve some big problems. Yeah, absolutely. And it, there's um, you know, often flyers up when you go down to the local GP or at hospitals and health clinics and universities. Um, and there's always um, people looking for, for um, budding volunteers to take part in, in scientific research. And they won't like be treated like ET and put 
on a table and like dissected or probed or something absolutely not no so um all research that that we do all goes through committees that are specifically set up to assess the ethics of, of what we do and anyone who's recruited or volunteers to be recruited always gets a full explanation of exactly what it's going to entail before they're they're enrolled and at any point in a study you always have the option there's to drop out you're never ever forced to do anything you don't want to do 99% of the time it's just going in having a bit of a health check and giving a urine sample which mostly isn't too painful yeah exactly (laughs) (laughs) I sort of feel like that might have been one of the things but are there any myths or misconceptions um whether it's about like phenotype research dementia any of those sorts of things that you would like to take this opportunity to squash yeah, I, I think that there is often sort of uh, a, a negative view on on dementia, and I think that it's important to remember that just because somebody has been been diagnosed with dementia, um, they can still live uh, and still enjoy and still live sort of very very um, rewarding life. And I think it's important to remember that. And I think when people talk about dementia, it's often spoken about it with negative connotations. And I think it's about supporting people who have been diagnosed and ensuring that we support them um, and we continue to research um, and find out new knowledge about, about the disease. Yeah, because if someone has been diagnosed, they're probably having a really bad day, uh, especially if they've just found out. And it's better not to run away. This isn't like contagious. It's not COVID. Um, <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I think another uh, misconception as well, I think a lot of people just view dementia um, and cognitive decline and memory loss as, as just a, a, a natural part of aging. But it's really important to remember that it, it's not a natural part of aging. It, it, is, it is a disease and it is a disease that we can do something about, whether that's through lifestyle interventions or whether that's through future treatments. It, it's also really important to remember that, that it is, it, it is a disease and one day it will be treatable. And I, honestly, I'm so excited for that day. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, yeah. And hopefully it's not too far away. Fingers fingers crossed. And do you have a virtual high five or a shout out, uh, something you'd like someone or an organisation or anyone who you think is doing an awesome job and deserves lots of high fives? Yeah, so I think anyone who who volunteers into um, into research and is a participant in, in scientific research, I think, absolutely deserves a virtual high five and i also think all the volunteers who have helped put together the um the pint of science week um over the last month and so also done a great job for for science communication across australia i think it's absolutely fantastic uh initiative to be part of and uh yeah it's been um and i think they deserve a big big round of applause they really do actually we'll, we'll give them a round of applause yeah. and the volunteers all get high fives because like without you the research doesn't work and that makes you really, really important. Exactly. We couldn't we couldn't do it without without participants and volunteers. And thank you to Point of Science for putting uh, you in touch with Avid Research because uh, it's entirely possible this podcast wouldn't have happened without them. So extra thanks. <laughs> thank you so much for coming on the show, Dr. Luke. This has been absolutely fascinating and I think everyone will have learned something, which is always a good thing. Thank you very much for having me. I've really, I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. (laughs) 
Thanks so much for listening. If you like this podcast, you're an absolute gem of a human being and you should head over to avidresearch.com.au, sign up for our amazing email newsletter and get all the download on the upcoming episodes and maybe even get a bit of a sneak peek about what's coming next. If you've been enjoying this podcast, you should definitely subscribe. We're on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, and even Google these days. Thanks.